0: I always suspected my parents harbored some kind of long-held secret. I think they wanted us to be like a normal family. Didn't want us to ask a lot of questions. secret hidden far behind the lenses of the cameras that immortalized these images. The atmosphere was very, very secretive. This secret is down so deep, we're down by the center of the earth here. Jesus. secret they hid away from my two older brothers, myself, and anyone else deemed necessary to keep in the dark.
1: There's no way anyone could figure this out. The doctor told me not to tell a soul. Tell no one. Nobody. Shh. That world at that point was shrouded in secrecy and shame. This kind of thing is ethically iffy. Say hi. Hi, hi. okay. We have a great religious thrust not to do this.
0: I should have known there was more. A lot more. My name is John Bain. Who am I? Who else knew about this? What else did my parents not tell me? This is the story of what happens when, at 54 years old, What? I discover a secret my parents are keeping from me. The. About me. And then, suddenly the pages all go blank. (laughs) She knows I found out. She knows I found
1: out. Welcome to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Slayton, and I'm so glad you're here. I empower leaders to turn indifferent customers into loyal fans. I talk to guests with a wide range of expertise who share meaningful insights and wisdom. We give you practical tips and proven frameworks and share ways to help you delight your customers. Last week on the show, we talked to Dennis Keeling about storytelling. We talked about the importance of storytelling. We talked about the structure of a story and the important things involved and how critical it is in the business world or for leaders to be good storytellers. But today, we have a very special guest. And the guest on the show is not just someone familiar with storytelling. He worked with CNN for over 14 years producing, and he is a filmmaker who made a film that is currently in Amazon's top 10 documentaries. It is called Filling in the Blanks, and it is an honor for me to have john bame on the show and one thing i want to tell you about it's not just a story that john babe's telling the story that john Bame is in and not only john Bame is in the story i'm in the story so john welcome to the delighted customers podcast thank you for being on the show
0: mark it is good to be here and it's good to have you as part of the story
1: so i i, I can't wait i mean this is just so bizarre and unusual a story that you can't make this stuff up, right? You can't make this stuff up. I mean, if I've, I've listened to your podcast. This is definitely, you're definitely uh, thinking a little outside the box here. Something a little unique. Which, which, which I like, I mean, we're gonna land the plane. We're gonna end up in, the, in this world of how do you do CX better? How do you improve the yes. lives, reach the lives of customers? But one of the critical things that any leader needs to do, as I mentioned, even uh, especially a CX leader, is to be able to tell stories. And the good news is that if you're not naturally born at it, you can learn how to get better at it. And today, I'm so excited. So you got a sneak peek. You heard the the film trailer just now. John, (laughs) do you want to share a little bit and reveal a little bit about how we met?
0: Hmm. It's complicated but we'll do it let's go so all right in 2018 I was at dinner with my dad and a couple of his friends he was turning 92 and they were talking about taking of all things a DNA test some of these people were in adult education classes um, at the University of Miami so you know this is older people in Florida and I'm visiting um, and they started talking about taking DNA tests. And I said, gosh, I really wanna take one of those DNA tests. I really would like to learn more about my heritage because my dad's mother, my, my paternal grandmother was adopted. And I thought, well, who knows what's in there? You know, who, who knows what's in, in the bloodline? So I said, I, I wanna take one of those tests. And my dad looked at me and he goes, I don't want you to take that test until after I'm dead. So the whole table looks at him like he's having some kind of a a moment. And, um, I thought he was kidding. And I said, (laughs) I said, no, really, I'll take it. I want to find out, you know, what Nana's Nana's, you know, what's in her heritage. I said, I don't want you to take that test until after I'm dead. So I realized at this point he was pretty serious. And of course the people at the table were looking at him like something's wrong with this guy. Um, Cut to the next day, I'm taking a DNA test. Cut to uh, maybe a month or so later, I get the results back. And um, I find out I'm 99.7% Oscar Jew, and I don't think about it anymore. I never told my dad I took a test because he was so weird about it. About a year later, I was watching the Oscars. So we're in 2019 now. It's Oscar night. And I'm going to my DNA page, and I'm almost ready to just cancel the account. It's nothing there. Um, and this little button says, check your DNA relatives, click here. And so I, I did, and there was this warning that told me, be careful. You know, you never know what you could uncover. There might be family information you don't know about. And I'm thinking, yeah, and I just flew in from Montana today and I sat at the emergency exit of the airplane. I didn't have to open the emergency exit at all, even though they warn you, you might have to open the door if the plane goes down. So I, you know, figured I'd be playing my odds pretty safe. So I clicked it. I clicked see your DNA relatives and I got that little spinning hourglass. And the next thing I know, all these names pop up. And one of them, one of the names was yours, Mark. It said, Mark Slayton half brother. Now I know at that time, at that time, I know no Mark Slayton. Uh, maybe he did, but I didn't. And then a bunch of other names came up. Four or five other names came up. Half sister, half sister, half brother, another half sister. And I thought, well, okay, obviously there's some kind of a here. So I got on my computer and typed, how accurate are at-home DNA tests? And uh, when it comes to uh, family lineage, they're, they're pretty accurate. If, if you have a lot of uh, different heritage... It can change, but people who are like half brothers, full siblings, parents, up to first cousins, even the at-home ones are pretty accurate. So I didn't know what to make at that point. So that is the beginning of this story. Um, The next day I get a uh, a message on the uh, interface, the test interface, just like Facebook, you can send messages privately you can do that also in this case it was with 23 and me from uh one of the half siblings who was a sister her name is sharon and it said hi john i see we're related if you'd like to know more about how we're related just let me know i respect your privacy enjoy your journey i'm scratching my head because i'm thinking what journey is she talking about at this point i'm thinking maybe my dad had like affairs around the time i was born because everybody who was On the DNA test, everybody who was popped up as a half-sibling on the test results were within, you know, 8, 10 months of my age. So uh, I said, yes, tell me. Because I figured at this point I'm going to find out that her mother had an affair with my father. And this is going to blow some things open. Um, Right. And she she wrote me back a very, very interesting response that really I did not see coming. Uh, It was one of those curveballs. And it said, uh, one, I know your biological father. So I'm like, I didn't know Sharon knows my dad. And then two, it said he is an 86-year-old at the time, an 86-year-old former OBGYN who lives in Nevada. And I'm thinking, this is getting weirder. And then it goes on to say he was a medical student who donated sperm for couples Who were infertile and everything connected at that moment the dots all connected no wonder he didn't want me to know he didn't no wonder he didn't want me to take the test because he didn't want me to know that he was not my biological father i learned that he was incapable of having children i have two older brothers uh they have since taken the test and they have half siblings um like most of the people uh we were all born at the same hospital for the most part. I don't know if you were, but I know I was born at Mount Sinai hospital in New York city, as was many uh, of our siblings and many of my brothers who I was raised with their half siblings, they were all born at Mount Sinai hospital. So I knew this is probably not uh, some kind of catfishing expedition because nowhere on the internet does it say I'm born in Mount Sinai hospital in New York. And I quickly put it together and realized, Oh, the man who raised me is not my biological father. I was 54 when I found this out. So decades had gone by and I'm thinking what's going on. Why wouldn't they tell me this? And thus began the beginning of a long and interesting journey.
1: Yes. Yes. And, um, and then, you know, shortly thereafter that uh, we connected, you and I connected and, just to give the audience a little backstory, My story is a little different, John. As you just shared, he didn't, he wasn't told by his parents. He found out through a DNA test when he was 54. Um, I was told by my mom when I was 19. I was a college student at the University of Maryland in College Park, and I had a small procedure to remove something from my scalp and share with my mother that they were interested in dad and mom's background medically and went back for winter break. And then she told me late one night, and she said... You remember when we were when we were trying to have not you remember you we were trying to have children um your dad was shooting blanks and i what does that mean you know how did i even get here then uh like you said was there an affair or something like that and she said no my brother had told me about some something he saw in a newspaper that was uh artificial insemination and um, and that that's a similar story that's how i got she she went through i think it was a second try uh, in the same uh, doctor in Manhattan. I was born in Bronx Hospital. Um, just that's where the OBGN had had uh, had the connection. But um, same thing. She told me that it was a resident doctors in Mount Sinai that were donating. And I didn't, I didn't believe her because it just seemed too far-fetched. Never <laughs> did I imagine 37 years later that I would find out I just thought it was just this massive, like, one in a million chance that you would ever know who this person was. And then the technology came around and I took the test and I had a similar experience. And I had, to, at that point, I was a little bit ahead of you. So there were three girls identified first. And then there were some familial children that right. had, from marriage, family that had tested that, that were also popping up there. So, but you, um decided to turn it into a film at some point. Mm-hmm. So what um you know you I, I don't want I don't want to talk so much about all the different layers of complexity that go into our story and what mm-hmm. made it so the the common threads that were true for the fathers, the 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 non-biological fathers and so forth. But what at what point did you just say I, I'm, I'm going to make a film about
0: this. The point where I decided to make a film about it was during COVID. Uh, as you recall, um, I wanted to test and see how it would work out. So as you remember, or you might recall, I was interviewing via Skype, you and some of our other donor siblings, uh, the other male and the two other, three other uh, females. Um, and I put something together, a little rough cut in my, in my, uh, downstairs edit room. And I thought, you know what, this is, this is interesting. Why shoot it on, you know, zoom and Skype and have it all blurry and fuzzy. I think there's uh, a real, uh, story to tell there. And so I decided to, uh, Go ahead and make a movie out of it i just think it would be very interesting that was one reason the other thing was you know you knew that um you were being uh you knew you were donor conceived your mom told you in the middle of the night right nobody ever told me so at 54 and my parents are both still alive at this point and the next time i see them after i find out remember i live in a different state than they do so i don't see them every day but I, uh, quite a few times a year you know I'm, I'm looking at them a little differently and it's a little bit of a shock when you find out that your parents have been keeping something so quiet and secretive about you and basically you're their biggest secret and you know you to you have to process that a little bit and I think that making this film really helped me process it. It was totally a cathartic experience oh. The backdrop of our charmed suburban life was this house in South Orange, New Jersey. So much was so good, yet something didn't add up in this accountant's home. Today, I wonder what secrets were shared within its walls that I was never privy to.
1: What does the house know that I don't? so let's focus in a a little bit more on the storytelling process itself um you had a story to tell you you did kind of a exploration slash investigation uh because really the dna test like you said it was just like sort of popping the lid off the can and now you're going to find out kind of as paul harvey used to say the rest of the story um (laughs) all these people that you're going to meet who are not not just like long distance relatives but like 50% DNA matches correct like uh, and uh, and then kind of finding out okay where does this end is it is it do we have the, all the people in the story is a story or all the actors and actresses on stage or could there be more people entering the scene uh, right and right. so you've got all, all this um How do you talk talk through us? How do you begin to collect, for lack of a better word, and I'm I'm using a CX term here, data? How do you collect the data you need to tell the story? You
0: mean to actually, yeah. Um, A lot of that is uh, you got to look for what I call almost like the emotional spikes. What are the hmm. moments? What are the moments that really hit me that I believe will resonate with an audience? Um, example one: Once I decided I was going to make this film, I started recording conversations with my parents, unknowingly to them, um, and I even asked my mom, who was suffering from dementia, "Why didn't you tell me that?" Um, I was donor conceived. Why did you not, Yeah, you know, why'd you keep this secret? And it took a little while because she was, you know, she wasn't cognitively great, but when she finally clicked in, she just told me, cause it's none of your business, you know? So I thought, well, gee, that's kind of an odd thing for a parent to say to a kid, <laughs> to their son at, in their mid fifties about why they never told them their origins. And I thought, well, that's a good emotional moment. I have that recorded and so I, I put that in. Um, I also enjoyed and found it very interesting to resonate. Um, I also enjoyed talking to you guys, meaning you and our other donor brother and the three donor sisters at the time about their experiences and some of the things they told me. For example, your mom said to you, your dad was shooting blanks. I think, that's, <laughs> I think when people just heard that now, they 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 it caught their attention so that's another thing and i line all these things up and then try to tell them is a lit in a in a linear way as linear as possible so it kind of started with this started with that started with this and what i'm doing is i'm I'm getting the ingredients you know uh your mother telling you our, our donor sister's mother's telling them uh, one of our donor sister's parents didn't tell her And she didn't find out until after they died and how everybody reacted. Um, And so I have all these things. When you, when you, the way I look at it is when you have all these elements to tell a story, they're like the ingredients. They're like the cup of sugar, uh, you know, the baking soda, the two pounds of butter or margarine if you're on a diet. And what you have to do is you have to take those ingredients and actually make them create almost like a dish with it. Uh, So there's the, the um, substance. And then there's like the art of it. And you could take uh, a recipe of anything, chocolate chip cookies, flan, whatever, and have two people make it and it could taste different because different people do different things when they're creating it. So the ingredients are like the tangible points, but the art of it is actually baking it, creating it, and and making it and serving it as a dish to eat and how you present that dish too. So it's it's style and substance. The substance are the facts of the story. Um, The style is how do you weave those facts together how do you tell those facts in such a way that it then becomes a story? Something with a beginning, a middle,
1: an end, an arc. Yeah, so, so let, me, um, let me pull out one of the gems. I'm sure we'll pull out multiple ones, but one of the ones that you said was you're using this analogy of ingredients and baking and every, everybody can have the same ingredients, but not make the same great tasting cake or whatever it is you're cooking. right so and and there's both an art and a science to that um and and i would i would probably argue from from uh, reading this book called made to stick by the heath brothers why some ideas survive and others die they they use this formula when doing their research and one's at duke i think the other ones at stanford on why some ideas get traction like why why in africa when there are kids dying from this rare disease um won't, won't, won't people use a certain methodology Take a, go to a town and take a drug that's available to them it's because it's too hard to get to but if you figure out a way to get it in the mother's breast milk right then they'll they'll do that you know and so it's it's thinking outside the box but it's it's what they what they call success as an acronym: simple, unexpected. And there's a lot in that in the movie. I'll tell you that the movie's almost all about unexpected, incredible, <laughs> uh, right? And so we'll talk about some of the uh, experts that you brought into the film and and you, using that balance of of you know, emotion and fact, emotion and logic um incredible concrete so it's it's not vague but it's it's easy for us to wrap our head around emotional stories right emotional stories and what they said is it's it's because of this thing called the velcro theory of memory which is the idea that our brain has a left and a right side and there's hooks and they're like hooks and loops in velcro and that when you tell a story both that you said the art and science the the logical and the and the and the, the, the emotional side of that help us remember things better. It mm-hmm. helps with our memory. And so you did, you did a fabulous job of, of crafting in art and science. You, you shared on the podcast earlier, described the, you sitting on the window seat of a plane with, with the, uh, the escape, escape door. But in the movie, you recreated that and you had an image of that in the film of, of an actual inside of an actual airplane. Please note,
0: you may discover unexpected information in DNA relatives, though uncommon, unexpected relationships may be identified that could affect you and your family. You know what else is uncommon? Sitting in the emergency exit of an airplane and thinking that you're actually going to have to open the door in case that plane goes down. So far, I'm batting a thousand on extra legroom and zero on ever having to open that door. So playing those odds, I confidently clicked on. Turns out, I'd have been better prepared sitting at an emergency exit flying into a storm than proceeding on with 23 and me. I was in for quite the ride. The closest relatives pop up first. Yes. Uh Most people, I wouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people can resonate with that idea because a lot of people fly and, (laughs) you know, uh, 99.999, whatever percent of the time, they get on the plane, they get off the plane, they're unscathed, and maybe the worst thing that happens is they lose their baggage. So, you know, everybody can relate to that. You don't, you know, but when the unexpected happens, whether it's on a plane or whether you take a DNA test that's where people go, whoa, you know, that's where they say, whoa, um, this is, wow, I can relate to this, but imagine if that happened, imagine if that was me, how would I react? And and what I do find from from this film, from people I've talked to, who are considering it for film festivals, etc., is after they watch the film, whether they like it, they kind of like it, they love it, whatever, they still always have a very long conversation about family, so there's something you can relate to there. There's something that you can identify with, um, and then there's the wow factor. The geez, imagine if that happened to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and and, uh, and so you are building this story. You're getting all this data. You're interviewing the five other DNA siblings, you, you went to La, well, you went to Las Vegas at some point and then you also did a remote interview of our biological father who's retired OBGYN, his, and his spouse, you interviewed my wife, Amanda um, and, and others and you you know you incorporated just a whole bunch of and you, so you had all this data and then in some cases, you felt like you needed more data. You went got and got uh, what, a sociologist at one point. I think the doctor would probably explain that you would be the legal parents to that child. For all intents and purposes, the father of the child will be your husband. His name will be on the birth certificate. He'll help raise the child and make decisions for the child's well-being. In the fifties, in the sixties, there was only fresh sperm, and the way in which doctors found donors was the expectation that they would use their medical students. Okay, all right. So now we're going. We're going to explore how you start to narrow the scope of this thing, because you know the way that the film was. It Billy Billy Joel had a song about you know it needs to finish in. in Two minutes and fifty three seconds. I forget the name of the song. The Entertainer. The Entertainer. Oh yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, um, And it's not going to sell unless it's that. So you've got a similar kind of artificial constraint on some reasonable amount of length for a documentary. This is like an hour and thirty four minutes, right? Mm-hmm. It's the game and in so you ninety minute range. Ninety even range, and, and you, you've got to you've got to pick and choose what stays in. Right. So how do you make those decisions? (laughs) Uh, Well,
0: the good news is I had help. Um, I do have a lot of experience with video editing. Um, That's where I started at CNN. And that's what the foundations of my storytelling were, which in the nonfiction world is actually pretty important. So I I have that base. But because I was so close to the story, Mark, I decided that I better have somebody else edit it. Um, you know, I'm a kid that grew up in the suburbs uh, in, in New York City, a Jewish kid, Bar Mitzvah from South Orange. And I found um, a woman who I've known for years here in the metro Atlanta area who is a fantastic editor. And she didn't grow up the same way I grew up. Her parents were completely different than mine. You know, I, I, my parents lived in the same house for 60 years. She moved around the country. Um, you know, she wasn't very religious, let alone not Jewish. And I thought this would be good because that person can look at my story with some fresh eyes. And I thought that was really important because if I had done this myself, I put the story in danger of going well into the weeds. And I did not want that to happen. And conversely, she would put things in that I would never have thought to put in. Um, you know there's a very cute scene where our donor dad is, is doing puzzles because he wants to keep his mind fresh, and he's, he's very funny about it. I would have never thought to put that in. But she called me um, when that cut came out. And she said, "I want you to see what I did. I, I found something. I think it really expresses our, your donor dad." Um, and I looked at it and I go, "I would have never thought to do it, but it works." So it was, and in in other ways, she also said, you know, you're leaving out that your mom and dad were crazy about each other. Your father worshiped the ground your mother walked on. She could tell by the interviews and also by all the old films and videos, which I use in the film. And I would have never thought to put that in. I just took it, you know, I just took it for granted. Oh well, you know, but it it was important and she, she, she helped put that in. So that's how the part of the process is having somebody else to bounce ideas off of. Um, And then there was the tough decision of how do I cut? Um, And unfortunately for two of our donor siblings, even though they're still in it, um, their stories were um, a little bit different than the three stories of yours and and our our donor sister, Sharon and, and Lauren. So, or Laura, I should say, oh my God, sorry, Laura. Um, She hears this. I apologize. And I I had to make some choices. How far in the weeds does their story go? And so to keep this thing close to 90 minutes, I had to to chop out a little bit of them. Not too much, but enough just to keep the story moving forward because it was starting to get into the weeds. You know, I didn't need to leave in that David's dad had emphysema, which I had in there. And I realized, well, this isn't really important to the story. I mean, it's important to David, but... It doesn't help. So there, there is a process of bouncing ideas off of people. There's a process also of not watching it for a couple of days and watching it with fresh eyes. So it helps mm-hmm. you say, hmm, this isn't resonating with me the way it was the other day. Or "Hmm, this is resonating more than it was the other day. So I think I'll keep it in. And that's that's my process. That's at least as best as I can describe it
1: yeah and let me let me double tap on that one too because there's another gem in there okay is um when you when you are so close to the we'll call it data here the raw material the content the findings Mm -hmm. um in the world of customer experience it's it's, it's usually data from customer sentiment or operational data around customer-related activity. So you're looking at, you're trying to create a story. Maybe you put a draft together of what you're thinking, and then to John's point, and I found this very much to be to be a good pull away from it for a couple of days, get your mind on something else, and then come back to it yourself with fresh eyes. Right. Right? Yeah. Right. That's and also, life. you... What, what you left out, John, was that you also had more than just your editor review parts oh. of the film before. Um, say more about that.
0: Uh, there were other people working on it, is what you are saying?
1: Yeah, and you had us. You had us, right?
0: You had yeah. Sorry, I am forgetting um, things. It's you know, I might be inheriting my mother's
1: thing. All right, we'll take it from here. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Um, I mean, so you, you you were saying for accuracy, but also like. How do you think this is, you know, stories developing here?
0: Yeah, I would. um, I definitely showed uh, cuts to uh, you guys, the donor siblings, yourself included. And um, I wanted to see uh, everything from making sure I spelled your name right or your names right to making sure I didn't misrepresent you in some way. Am I starting to make things up? I mean, this is a true story. There's nothing. I didn't make anything up. It's not based on on actual events. It is basically the actual events. So I had to make sure everything was accurate. Uh, I also wanted to make sure that, you know, you guys were interested in what I was saying. Did it hold your interest? Um, that's kind of important. And also, most importantly, does it represent your story fairly and accurately? That was very important as well. Also, there were some other people I worked with in the film um, like um, uh, my associate producer, Ed, uh, and he is a very good friend of mine. And he does this kind of work, too. Um, He also has a documentary currently in the top ten. It's actually Beating mine, which is kind of an honor. Um, But uh, he, he would say to me, you know what, you're getting in the weeds here. Be careful you don't talk too much about this or that. People don't care about this. People don't care about that, you know people want to hear more about this this is going to be something that's going to resonate more and again when you're doing your own story you you really don't want to bury your head in the sand and just be surrounded by your own thoughts you've you've got to have other input and it's got to be people you trust and people who you think have good judgment take my mind off having children so i tried out for game shows and i got on one
1: these are $3,000 winners, Mrs. Harriet Bain and her partner, Buffalo Bill Vogel, competing for a salary of $500 a day on Who Do You Trust? Now, here's the star of our show, Johnny Carson.
0: She was on for two weeks. She won 5500 bucks. She got enough money to get the automatic garage door opener.
1: Welcome to Who Do You Trust? We have another time.
0: That's what she told me. She did with the money.
1: Have you been out spending any of it at all? No, not yet. Haven't spent a cent. No. But watching
0: my mother on that game show at 28 years old talking to Johnny Carson, it was. <laughs> there's Johnny Carson, <laughs> and then there's Johnny Carson. How did the Johnny Carson clip get in? You know, there was a, a, a there was an old family story about my mother being a champion on a game show, and her story was the doctor told her that she was too nervous to get pregnant. This is what she told me. And that she had to take her mind off of, um, getting pregnant. So she would, she lived in the New York area. She tried out for game shows and she got on a game show with Johnny Carson. Um, in 2012, there was a special on PBS, a retrospective of the life of Johnny Carson, King of late night. And, um, my mom was watching it, and she saw herself and goes, oh, my God, they used my game show clip. They used my game show clip. She called me up, and it, in uh, in my city, in, in Georgia, in Atlanta, it ran um, maybe the day after it ran when she saw it in uh, New Jersey. And um, I saw it, and I was like, wow, that really is her on the game show. Everything, you know, there she is with Johnny Carson, you know?
1: So, so in the movie, you conjectured that it's possible that – she was going into Manhattan to be on this game show and, and, and winning on the game show with Johnny Carson and also maybe going in for an artificial insemination procedure at the same time. I would say it's more than likely that that happened because when I
0: when you look at my oldest brother's birthday and you figure out the conception date, it's right during the time she was on the game show. She was champion on that show for two weeks. I mean, she was like a trivia master. Um And it's right there. I mean, the dates coincide with the dates she was on the game show. I know what day she was on the game show because it's listed on the clip I got. Um, And I know she was on for two weeks because that's what she told me. So I I was able to figure out by how much money she won the exact day she was on and the day she got kicked off, like two weeks later. She said two weeks. It was really 11 days. But um, anyway. I could figure it out and it coincided exactly with the dates uh, that my brother would have had to have been conceived. It was really 11 days, but um, anyway, I could figure it out and it coincided exactly with the dates uh, that my brother would have had to have been conceived.
1: Yeah. And and in the film, John uses, again, like a use of visual uh, recreating the scene with this this uh, digital countdown for babies when they going back nine months and you see ah here's how the math works you know calculator and I want to pull out another gem here uh, of what you just shared as it relates to the business world <clears throat> as as it relates to storytelling in business and that is show show if you can rather than tell right show. Um, if you have data that suggests that this this group of clients are unhappy about this particular journey they're taking, that's one thing. You can show percentages, number quantities, you know, operational data. That's one thing. But if you can show a video clip of a customer sharing their story about why this creates friction for them, and show that to the executives, that's much more compelling and emotionally connecting story right oh yeah absolutely
0: so you know uh and you you sort of do it in a revealing way um you know i know the day she was on the game show i and then i said so i went to when was i and put in my brother's birthday and it pretty much matches the days that she was
1: on the game show i mean it it, so and you're like oh films you mentioned like 90 roughly 90 minutes how many hours of 90 minutes how many hours of film did you
0: actually have well uh technically i had no film it's all electronic but i had um 20 hours of video shot
1: okay R- roughly hours. so well, that So that doesn't
0: include that doesn't include you know maybe six seven hours of home movies plus yours plus uh our donor brother david gave me some home movies so yeah i mean there was uh, at least twenty four hours of footage to go through.
1: So so of all of all the film you took, you used less than certainly less than five percent to make the movie.
0: Yeah, that's actually pretty high. Most movies do do a lot less than that. It's usually two or three percent. And
1: it's it's because you're so experienced. But what now you're gonna add her back in. So that's a great that's a great Uh, illustration for someone thinking about storytelling to say if if you're if all you're thinking about is i gotta narrow it down i gotta whittle it down i gotta um, get it down to this size then you could lose some like value storytelling value the value of of what you're trying to get across yeah Mm -hmm. tell us what what went through your mind in in including her adding her really into the story as viable film minutes What
0: I wanted to do in this film is take people back to the decision process, to the process, not even the decision process. Once you make the decision, I wanted to try and take myself and the viewer back into the room, the room where it happened. I mean, it's yeah. obvious what the doctor's going to do to the patient, you know, and I didn't want to get into, you know, um, all that. Uh, yeah, I can't think of the word but it'll come to me in a minute when it's late but anyway I didn't want to make it so dramatic to add that kind of drama of the actual process but there is a decision yeah. process and I wanted to go into the decision process and the best way to do that was to talk to somebody who had experience that could say this is what happened when your parents went um, they were told this they were told that they were told not to tell anybody anything Tell no one, um, and I think that that sort of helps the story. You know, you think, oh, well, am I, I'm getting an expert in. I'm just going to get facts and figures and boring numbers. But no, that's part of the story. Part of the decision making was everything from what your child will look like. Well, the husband has dark eyes, so we're going to look for a donor with dark eyes. Um, don't tell anybody because it can ruin the child's. Uh, I don't know what they were thinking, but they just figured it wasn't a good idea to tell the children ever. So it was a secret, you don't tell anybody, you move on. Plus there were some legal issues. Legally it was it was sort of a gray
1: area. And um, she said, uh, you know when you asked me about, you were relating that story about your medical condition and what the doctors were asking about your history, medical history, and I said, yeah. She goes, well, um, you know around the time you were born, we were planning on having a family. But um, your dad was shooting blanks. And I'm like, what does that mean? And those were her exact words. Those were her exact words. When she told me, the very last thing she said was, don't tell him, my dad, he told me not to tell you. Eventually, Mark's
0: mom did mention to his dad that she had told Mark about the insemination. So from the early 1980s until his dad's death in 2016, more than 30 years, Mark knew the secret, and his dad knew that Mark knew.
1: (laughs) Because that isn't something you tell someone on the first date. Back when he was 19, he finds out his father is not his father, and that they never speak about it together, even though they both knew. It just was incredible.
0: So you never talked to him? Did you ever think about it? Did you ever think about saying something to him?
1: I did start to think about it in his later years. His health started to fail, he went on dialysis, and I considered saying it, if nothing else, to thank him for the selfless thing that he did. I was torn, because I wanted to thank him for giving me this gift of life, but at the same time, if it made him feel bad and feel ashamed of something that he obviously chose for 50 some odd years not to bring up that I didn't want to be the first to bring it up.
0: One of the things I learned as I went through this experience, it wasn't just about me finding out that my parents were keeping a secret from me. It was about that they struggled to have children and that is drama in itself. So I wanted to explore that drama and see what what some of the likely things were that might've happened as they were going through their experience in their struggle to have children
1: well i for one am, am incredibly grateful uh for making the movie it, it uh it lit me up to see my wife in the film and, <laughs> and be, in particular it lit me up to see my father who was an entertainer as a second job and then in retirement he loved to entertain and he passed away six years ago and he kind of got his, his 15 minutes of fame posthumously thanks to you. So thank you, my brother from another mother. Ah, you're very welcome. I like the phrase. (laughs) (laughs) So John, uh, uh, the film is filling in the blanks. The producer filmmaker is John Bain. John, if anyone in our audience would like to, number one, watch the movie, and number two, get a hold of you, contact you, how how might they do that? Uh,
0: There's two ways. I have two answers for that. If you want to watch the movie, uh, Amazon Prime is running it. Apple TV is running it. Uh, YouTube is running it. Uh, Microsoft, uh, I think Microsoft uh, Movies—they have a movie app. Something called Voodoo, which I shouldn't say something because actually we're getting a lot of <laughs> we're getting a lot of views on that one. Um, also, if you have cable uh, in the United States and Canada you can watch it on most cable systems on demand. So it is available. If you want to get in touch with me, uh, there's a website for the movie, filling in the blanks, movie.com. And uh, there'll be a way to get in touch with me through that, uh, through that.
1: Excellent. What a fun time, John. We what got to, are? we got to, uh, to close, bring the curtain down, pardon the pun here. But thank you, Thank you so much for being a guest. Hey, it was fun. I had a good time. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to The Delighted Customer's Podcast. I'd like to ask you a favor. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of my other ones, hit subscribe or follow. I've got a lot of other great guests that are coming up and a lot of other great content and I don't want you to miss anything. You can find any links or references on the show in the show notes, and you can find those on my website at empoweredcx.com.